Hi everyone, this is Chris Damien. You're probably here because you follow my writings on Catholicism, sexuality, and the clergy abuse crisis. Most recently, I've been covering sexual orientation change efforts in Catholicism, exploring connections from the reparative therapist who serves as director of psychological services at New York's major seminary, to Bob Schutz, the reparative therapist who did workshops for seminarians in my own archdiocese, the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. Today, I'll be sharing the first part of a conversation with Christopher Dowling, a former net missionary, a graduate of the University of Dallas, an ex-seminarian, and a conversion therapy survivor. For a number of years, Christopher worked on healing his same-sex attractions directly with Bob Schutz, who he remembers fondly and painfully as Dr. Bob through the John Paul II Healing Center. We talked about the subtlety of orientation change efforts in Catholic circles, how Christopher West led him to conversion therapy, why he spent more than $50,000 on these efforts, what he sees as the template for the creation of McCarrick's in Catholic spaces, and how he thinks about his Catholic faith today. Because of the significance of this conversation and my belief that these types of stories should be given the space to be told in their complexity, our conversation will be split into two parts. Today, we'll cover Christopher's Catholic upbringing and what led him to conversion therapy. In the next episode, we'll dive into his experience of conversion therapy and the effect it's had on his life. Please note that there is some adult language and discussion of adult themes. This conversation may not be suitable for young children. Nonetheless, I do think it's an important conversation for the church, and I hope that you'll share your own thoughts and experiences with me after listening. The church can and must do better. I hope you'll join us in seeking healing, accountability, and change. We're gonna talk a little bit about your journey through experience with conversion therapy. But kind of before we start out, maybe do you just wanna give a little bit of an introduction, like your name, what you do for a living, where you are now geographically? Yeah, uh, so yeah, Christopher Dowling, and uh, really glad to be here. So thank you for uh, bringing me on. There's two of us and we're both Chris, so hopefully for the listeners, it'll be easy to, to catch both of us. But I live in Austin, Texas currently. I've been here for the most part for about seven years. I was born and raised in Texas, pretty much grew up in small town, Texas. It was a very evangelical Southern uh, sort of Protestant culture. And so that was definitely a big part of my upbringing uh, in high school youth group, but I've always been Catholic, was raised Catholic, but I got very involved in my youth group, the Baptist youth group, the Methodist youth group all through high school. Um, I had my conversion, like in a middle school youth retreat and just never looked back. And then I went to college in Texas and uh, was in seminary for one year to be a Catholic priest and then kind of left Texas for that. And then have pretty much been in Austin ever since. Yeah. So maybe let's maybe just start off by talking a little bit about your younger days growing up, what got you into your faith, what your faith meant to you, maybe during like mm-hmm. middle school, high school years. Yeah. You mentioned you kind of had this conversion experience. Could you kind of talk a little bit about that time of your life and, and what it meant to you then? Yeah. Um, looking back, my childhood uh, in a lot of ways was charmed growing up middle-class, you know, wealthy, was able to get good grades and was an athlete and things like that. Extracurriculars had a lot of friends, but like a lot of families in America, home life had its ups and downs. I guess you could consider it unstable, but in retrospect, the more I find about all other families, like everybody, every family has its, its functions and dysfunctions, but because it was a hard time being at home uh, in a lot of ways, I, when I had my conversion at, in a youth ministry function, like a conference uh, in ninth grade, 
I like really, really clung to youth group and the families at my church as a way of having that family stability mm. and just fell in love with God, fell in love with the church uh, and fell in love with the community that that provided. Mm. And so when I graduated high school, I was either going to go uh, to two universities that I was thinking about, or I was going to take a gap year and do mission work. And so I did mission work for a year in between high school and college for an organization called NET, which stands for National Evangelization Team. And I spent a year in a small town in Minnesota doing sort of long-term outreach uh, to middle schoolers and high schoolers and stayed with a different family every two weeks in this small uh, farming community in Minnesota. And to this day, like years and years later, I mean, 15 years later, gosh, you know, I'm still close with a few of these families and keep in touch. So it was really incredible experience, life-changing in a lot of ways. And, uh, and then after that went to a four-year university called the university of Dallas. It's a very conservative, so to speak, Orthodox Catholic university in Dallas. And, um, and then after that worked in nonprofit for Catholic, uh, organizations. And like I said, I did, then I did seminary for a year and dropped out and then moved to Austin. So that, that's kind of like a, the elevator pitch yeah. uh, uh, of life. And, you know, we'll talk deeper about where kind of conversion therapy came into that, but yeah, that, that was my unstable upbringing. So clinging to the yeah. church was really yeah. the, the place that kind of filled that gap that I felt yeah. like I was experiencing with my family at the time. Yeah. I mean, you're saying that it kind of made me think of, you know, Mary Carr has this line. I think it's, it's that, um, any dysfunctional family is a family with more than one person in it. And <laughs> I think a lot of people can relate to that. But kind of talking about your kind of like high school, college years, during that time in your life, what did it mean to be Catholic or to be a, a good Catholic? Yeah, uh, I'm an extrovert. And, and so in, in my high school years, to be a good Catholic was very much a social experience. So as a natural born leader, like being Catholic meant being involved in Catholic things or being Christian meant being involved in Christian things. So I had my Catholic youth group stuff that I did, but I was also a part of like a discipleship accountability group at the local Baptist church um, where I had to defend to them that I actually had a personal relationship with Jesus, you know, and I didn't worship the Pope and and all of those things that come with uh, being in community with evangelicals. Uh, But that's really where I fell in love with God in that sort of very personal way and developed a personal prayer life and you know, got in touch with like charismatic worship and, and contemporary worship. And so whenever they would question my personal relationship with Jesus, you know, I'd pray to father God and, and talk about Jesus, as my personal Lord and savior. And I'd use the right words and pray in the right way that, that I confuse them. Cause they're like, I guess he's saved, you know? And then, and then finding my way into, like I said, that gap year of mission work, that was also very evangelical, but it was Catholic, right? It was scriptural based. Um, it was praise and worship. It was evangelization and sharing your testimony, um, but with a very sort of orthodox Catholic culture as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, the way that you talk about it, it, it sounds like you have a lot of positive memories of kind of that, that period of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. Like this is, this, this is a discussion about conversion therapy, so we'll get into the shit, but, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, like I, I think it's important to really lead with how rewarding these experiences were and, and how amazing so much of it was um, and how much I value it is, part of how it formed me, you know, to who I am today. And yeah, well, I have a lot of doubts and frustration and trauma that I've worked through. There's still a lot of people in those circles and that life that I've sort of left behind coming out as a gay man, spoiler alert, that I still really <laughs> value. And like, it's positive, right. And, and, and it's positive for the people that are still in it, but there came a point for me where it, it can no longer hold. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and how would you kind of describe your relationship to your sexuality at that time, like high school, college years? Very much in retrospect, I would consider myself a gay young man who was really struggling to, to reconcile what was going on and the feelings I was having for all of the guys I was friends with and, you know, middle school, high school and college. But at the time, being a sort of naturally masculine person, that, that that's just the way I experienced my sexuality. I think I was able to cover it up, you know, and, and I dated girls in high school, dated in college, but, you know, was very close friends with a lot of guys. And in retrospect, like was just constantly having feelings for these guys, you know, having sexual arousal as a teenager and being very attracted to them erotically. Right. And all of these yeah. things, but, but never really acting on it, you know, yeah. in yeah. terms of having any sexual experience at that age, but very driven by that, but just pushing it down and saying, well, you know, really not even just dissociating from it and saying like, I'm not gay. This is going to go away. I'm going to grow out of this. That was always the big one is I'll grow out of this. I'll grow out of this. But the affections and the um, feelings that I had for these guys from my youngest days, I mean, I could distinctly remember, I mean, I could not going to do it on this podcast, but I could literally go through (laughs) probably second grade through the rest of my life and just like name whatever guy was the object of my desire at that time. And for the most part, I was just friends with them you know, but the feelings were definitely stronger. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what do you make of that? The fact that you can kind of go through and, and name all of them, right. That you have such a strong memory of it all. You know, I, I don't know that it's a super common experience that kind of everyone has such like intensity in terms of how they, their like memory of attractions and desires, you know, I mean, I, I definitely can recall being attracted to other guys in like high school and stuff, but I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds so intense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious of like people of any sexual persuasion, you know, yeah. gay, straight, whatever. Yeah. Um, for some people, it's very intense. And for other people, it's not as much. You know, I'm an extrovert. So okay. whether it's romantic or platonic friends, I connect very quickly. I, you know, even if it's not sexual, I have that friend crush. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. one of my uh, coworkers um, who's female, who I'm not really attracted to, like in a, in a sort of sexual romantic sense, we still joke because the way that we became friends as coworkers and the way that we dove in so intensely and had like this sort of friend crush, we joke about it, even though we're platonic friends. And then it kind of like buds out and we're like, Oh, are we like, are we going to define, like, are we long-term friends now? You know, it was just like a (laughs) thing that we had and we laugh about it. It's playful, but like, it's funny because as we've gotten to know each other and the way that each of us dates and, and, sort of um, relates romantically to the people that we're involved with her and I, we just see a lot of those similarities in terms of, it's not just, it's not just romantically, it's friends too. I'm a very intense person. I'm a very intimate person and I get to know people really, really quickly. Um, And I wear my heart on my sleeve. So naturally that would show up in a romantic way, you know, in my childhood and adolescence with guys that I was friends with, I just found out in a straight world, a way to sort of make it, make it come off in a certain way that was socially acceptable you know, I was terrified about going too far, with any of these guys are being found out as gay. So I, I just went as far as I could until there might have been some suspicions, you know? Yeah. And, and kind of thinking back to that younger version of yourself, you know, trying to not have things come out, trying to cover it up, you know, do you have a sense of what it would have meant for that younger version of yourself if it had come out? It's a, it's a tough world. I mean, even in a fully accepting world, like, let's say hypothetically, there was a world in which whatever your sexual orientation didn't matter, like hypothetically, I, st- I still like, do I spend the night with boys or girls? 
in, in, in said world, yeah. you know, yeah. who, like, I mean, this is getting right down to it, but like, who do you share locker rooms with, you know, like, who do you play sports with? Like, you know, and so, yeah, it's very difficult, even in a fully accepting world, like I would still be going on campouts with boys all the time and having sleepovers. Yeah. And so I don't know, you know, like, not, I'm not trying to be political. I'm not trying to force any ideology. I'm just, this is just my genuine curiosity of like, what could it have looked like in an ideal world in which I would thought at eight years old, okay, I'm gay. Yeah. How would that have changed things? Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure. I guess I'd have to ask the parents of eight-year-olds today <laughs> who are raising their kids in that world. Yeah. Um, that's, that's sort of more open and liberal and progressive in that way. But I know for me, it was just very intense because as, as a boy who, you know, socially is supposed to be close with all their boys. And like I said, go on campouts with them and play sports with them and yeah, go yeah. swimming with them and have sleepovers and all those things. Yeah. It was just very intense to have that sort of exposure. But had I like gone to hang out at, at girl's house, like there would, there would have been a ton of suspicion and, you know, that's a very difficult thing as well, you know? Yeah. So it's just yeah, hard, yeah. right? I just want to res- just want to respect like for everybody involved whoever people have opinions about these issues and how to raise kids and should they be able to come out at young ages, like whatever it's going to be, it's going to be really hard, you know? Um, And there's no easy way and there's no right answer in in my personal opinion. Um, So I I could, I could say what was healthy for me. It was toxic for me, you know? Um, But yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Thinking about kind of the different circles that you're in. So you talk about kind of this, um, Baptist group that you're involved in, you have kind of the, the Catholic groups that you're involved in, you know, you have your family, you also have, you know, went to University of Dallas, which, had, which has its own particular culture. You know, looking back, what were some of the messages that you would say that were coming from those different groups about kind of sexuality, homosexuality, either kind of like explicit or just things that you kind of picked up from just being in, in those cultures? Yeah, I would say, so my family, they brought me to church and I definitely owe my Catholic faith to my family, like the yeah. seeds that were planted, but the nurturing of that to be a very deep, intense Catholic faith that led me to seminary, that was not nurtured by my family. I would say my family planted the seeds by bringing me to church, uh, but then I got really involved. Again, I did that year of missionary work and went to a very conservative Orthodox Catholic school. My faith was just like the main motivator in all aspects of my life. That is something that my family did not really espouse. Um, and it was hard for them to see me sort of venture off and actually in some way separate from them. Um, but that said, uh, the message is about my sexuality and wh- how I was supposed to act. My family gave me a secular version of that. The Catholic church gave me a very theologized, spiritualized version of that, but they were very similar, right? Like a man is supposed to be this, a man is supposed to be the initiator. I mean, God, Chris, I like, I gave professional talks and fundraised on this, right? Like he's yeah, supposed yeah. to be the protector and the provider and the pursuer. And we make up all these alliterations, right? Yep. And like I said before, I really fit that bill in a lot of ways, whether it's something that was natural because the way that my dad raised me or because of the internalized homophobia and pressure I put on myself. Mm. Um, I will say that developed too, but like I was a naturally masculine person who enjoyed sports. I'm a very, my dad was a handyman. I've always enjoyed being a handyman. I love things like landscaping and building, building shit and fixing shit. Right. Um, it's funny. I found myself as an openly gay man who has a lot of flamboyant sides of me. I'll still find myself in friendships with a lot of straight guys, so to speak, where I'm still the more masculine hands-on, you know, guy, even though I'm the one that's totally gay. Um, right. And that really breaks that stereotype that like straight means masculine protector provider. That's the natural man and gay is, 
more flamboyant and feminine. I just like that. That was not at all my experience in retrospect, right? After all this life that I've lived. Um, so, so that's what I mean. Is like I picked up all these sort of masculine traits from what I thought my family expected of me. And then when I got really involved in my conservative Catholic faith and sexual ethics, there were scripture verses to back it and um, papal encyclicals and, and, you know, things like Pope John Paul II's writing called the theology of the body and all of these things that sort of, yeah, uh, confirmed that. I think that maybe part of what I'm hearing is, you know, when you think about what it means to be like straight versus gay, you know, being straight means that you fit in with these good gender roles and maybe being gay means that you just you don't properly fulfill the roles that that are appropriate for your gender but is would that be correct yeah it was really easy to deny the idea that i was gay because i was given a certain definition of gay mm-hmm. um sort of culturally in my family yeah. not not just like my immediate family but i'm just saying the world that i grew up in of like oh well, you're not gay because you don't have all these other aspects of you uh, and then again, like when I, when I got older and, and really dove into my Catholic faith, I had like, like I said, theology to back that, but it was like, well, I'm not gay because then that means all these things. But, it, but, but then when this conversion therapy sort of story dropped in is that like, oh, well, if you could just be more masculine and just be more, you know, protector, provider, pursuer, the natural father, the natural man, then like you're living the straight lifestyle. Yeah, it's just. I don't, I don't want to skip too much of my story. We'll get into that, but it's just, yeah. 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 I mean, that's really interesting. So I guess, yeah. So for you, you were kind of able to hide being gay in part because being gay meant fulfilling certain cultural stereotypes. Is that right? That I, that I wasn't necessarily fulfilling. So I was able to deny. Yeah. yeah. That I was gay. Yeah. yeah. You know? Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So you, so you guys called, what did you study in college? Economics, but I kind of joked that like economics was my minor. And my major was like campus ministry and spiritual direction and like, you know, all of those things. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I've always loved business and, and sort of finance. And again, I get that from my dad. I, you know, he, he loves that stuff. And that's how we bond is talking about mortgages and stock trading and all this nerdy stuff. But I just loved the church. I loved ministry. And so even though I was majoring in economics, I was spending the vast majority of my time and effort sort of doing ministry in an informal way, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So then you so you go to college and then right after college, is that when you go to seminary for the year? Uh, so I go to college at University of Dallas. I study abroad in Italy, which is an incredible experience to, you know, see the richness of the Catholic church and, and art and history and Western civilization, all these things that I really questioned that way of learning a lot later. But it was awesome when I experienced it, despite the fact that I was like in love with half of my straight friends um, all the time. And it was exhausting. And then I graduated. And after I graduated, my very first job was working for an organization called the Theology of the Body Evangelization Team. So I had been introduced to the Theology of the Body in college, you know, this teaching that John Paul II has on sort of gender roles and sexuality and human sexuality. And it was so invigorating and exciting for me. By the time I graduated college, I was in love with it and I want to dedicate my life to it while I was living a, a life in the closet, terrified that I'd be found out. And so that was my job for my first year. I did that. And I was a youth minister um, after college. So I did that for a year. And when that didn't suffice and fix me, so to speak, then I was like, okay, I'll go to seminary. I'm going all in um, and discern celibacy. Yeah. So just kind of to, to go back just a little bit. So when you say, so in college, you were introduced to theology of the body. So what, what does that mean? Like, did you like, read theology of the body? Was the theology of the body via a particular like, commentator? Yeah. What did that look like? That's when I dove in. I actually look back. I remember now when I was 16, I first heard my first talk by Christopher West, 
but essentially what it was is like, so here's me, this young, very, you know, devoted to the Catholic faith, really, really wanting to fit the roles and live a successful life and make my parents proud and make God proud and make the Pope proud and make the church proud, all these things. (laughs) So I had this broken part of me, which is my sexuality that I was terrified was going to ruin my life or hurt somebody or make me act out. So when I first heard about this, I, these talks about sexuality from Christopher West at the time, they were, I'm old, barely old enough that I, there were cassette tapes a little bit and then CDs. <laughs> um, those are my first Christopher West talks in, in high school. And then in college is when I really, really dove in. But, but what I do want to say is like when I was 18 and I did that mission year in college, I didn't really study theology of the body yet when I was 18 years old as a missionary, but that was the first time that I was told that you are gay because of your trauma from your family of origin, right? The story that you have a distant father and overbearing mother, you, you know, addicted to pornography and you're a victim of sexual abuse. And I like, I had all four, right? Like I like check, check, check. I like a plus the conversion therapy story for my life. So when I showed up as a missionary, like with all this baggage from my childhood, you know, it it just, it fit perfectly. Oh, if I could heal from these traumas enough, like then my same sex attraction would go away. So that was my mission year. So then when I went to college, but a year or two later, that's when I really dove into theology of the body. But I would say like a pop culture version of it. I mean, to this day, I've never read that much of John Paul II's actual writings. I've read a sort of translated pop culture narrative that, you know, we could geek out on for hours because you write specifically on this stuff. Um, So what it does is it takes the ideas that John Paul II promulgated in theology of the body, and then it compares it to 80s music and romantic films and rom-coms and like, you know, Disney movies. And it, it, yeah. and it sort of takes our modern day pop culture narratives that, that we're all raised with that really speak deeply to us and then connects them in these convenient ways to the theology of the body that really fit these gender roles and narratives that come to find out John Paul II wrote about in some ways, but not in great depth that I like picked up, you know, from all yeah. these pop culture books. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you mentioned earlier that, so you kind know, of at 18, when you're doing this um, ministry, that's the first time that you hear this narrative about kind of same-sex attractions rise because of like trauma, pornography. Um, I, I, where did that message come from? Was it from a priest or from some? Yep. Pastoral, I would say pastoral counseling, right? Like it, it was a priest one-on-one in confession. That's where it started. Okay. But then you began to like open up in your small group about it. And then like you Google it, you way into a book, you know? And so that those were the, probably the combo. It was like, priestly discussions and then eventually it was like small group discussions and then sort of like then I would start reading books or reading blog posts and here and it's so powerful at that age when you're so ashamed and you feel so isolated you're like I'm the only one that struggle and with that you know very tender emotional life that I had as an adolescent of just like isolation and fear and shame you hear one story yeah even if it's just an anecdotal story yeah and it's not even statistical and it's not even based in science yeah you hear that story and it just like seeps into your soul and your mind. And the story is so strong of like, Oh my gosh, me too. Right. Like I'm gay for these reasons or, you know, what, what, what have you. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and what do you recall at any point that kind of narrative? So you're sharing it in all these, you're getting it from all these circles, you're sharing it in all these circles. Do you recall at any point ever having that narrative kind of questioned or. Critiqued? I knew you were going to ask that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I do my year of net. Um, and then I go to University of Dallas and by then, I mean, let's go a little bit deeper, but like by, by the time I'd finished Nat and I was at the University of Dallas, that's where some of my first sexual experiences started happening. And they were very 
sort of supercharged high risk anonymous sexual encounters with like strangers, right? Like yeah. in me, like in certain scenarios that I won't get too much detail, but obviously sure, very sure. traumatic, very shame field, um, very intense. And so I began to read more and I went to a counselor basically I went to a therapist who at the time told me like, it sounds like you have a repressed sexuality that's coming out sideways and you need to come out as gay. And I was like, Oh, this is a liberal anti-Catholic therapist that is giving me some liberal bullshit. Yep. Right. And so as an 18 year old, I was paying for counseling out of pocket and I was so, so committed to trying to figure this out. So I ditched that therapist until I found a therapist that was way the hell more expensive. I mean, probably like $170, $200 an hour. This person was a member of Opus Dei. They were, I think they were psychiatrists too. Um, you're 18 years old and you're paying that much money out of pocket yourself to do this therapy. I would get in super yeah, big fights with my dad about this too. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he doesn't really buy into mental health, but yeah. In retrospect. Yeah. I mean, because I was, because you know, there's only one real good Catholic therapist in a metropolis, right? Like yeah. we know this story, right? Like all the other ones are crazy liberal and like yeah. there's only, you know, 0.05% of us living the truth, goodness and beauty in this world. And there's only a certain number of mental health practitioners yeah. You know, and so, yeah, I had to like find my way to those one or two people that would continue that story line yeah. that I picked up. Yeah. And, and, and what made you so resistant to that, that original therapist kind of what, what primed you for that? Yeah. I, I just think that like, I had felt such love and safety and affirmation in so many ways from a Catholic community, from an Orthodox Catholic community, from a conservative yeah. Catholic community, from a Catholic community rooted in theology of the body and a lot of these narratives around what yeah. made me gay that I just wasn't going to trust an outsider, oh, you know, yeah. um, th- that's going to question all that. Yeah. It's terrifying for all that to come crumbling down and to yeah. question yeah. all of it. You know, yeah. I'd also like labeled myself and become labeled as a sex addict, right. Because right. of these high risk sexual behaviors that yeah. yeah, were very damaging and traumatic and like they've had an effect on me and I've had prolonged PTSD from them, but sort of approaching my sexuality with a 12 step lens Um, which is what a lot of Catholic pastoral programs based on homosexuality and healing homosexuality approach it from the 12 step methodology too. Mm -hmm. the, you know, were they practicing conversion therapy? Like I didn't need them to, because I was reading enough of it and watching enough YouTube videos and reading enough books that I was like, I was so convinced of the story that underpins conversion therapy, right? Like, you know, these change efforts that I didn't really need formal conversion therapy from a therapist because I was getting it, you know, everywhere else to the point where, when I found a progressive therapist that was trying to break the conversion therapy, I was like, no, you know? Um, And that's a free pass that a lot of sort of Catholic counselors that believe that orientate sexual orientation can be changed. They get a free pass and they don't have to break the terms of their license or practice conversion therapy, so to speak, because their clients are willfully engaging in it, you know, Um, equipped with YouTube videos and blog posts and, and, you know, sexuality talks and things like that. Yeah. I mean, were there any like books or particular speakers in that world that you remember that were especially influential for you? Yeah. I mean, I'll just plug all, you know, your blogs, obviously. I mean, you don't yeah. have to. Yeah. yeah like we know, right. It's like, it was Chris. It's yeah. Prom, yeah. Primarily Christopher West. And then his like sidekick that translated this stuff for teens, which was Jason Everett. And then um, a lot of people within the theology of the body uh, Institute. So Jan Smith, and then, yeah. And then even, even evangelical writers, like we've talked, you've talked about them on your blog, but like Andrew Sullivan, um, Leanne Payne, cause I was very charismatic. I started getting charismatic healing. I mean, I can, you know, we're on the podcast, but like if I were to open my door and go into my bookshelf, I still, for the sake of 
you know, the memory of all this, I have like seven to 12 books on this stuff, specifically on like homosexuality and Catholic church teaching and essentially how to heal your sexuality. Yeah. So, and that was over about a 10 year period. I dove deeper and deeper and deeper, you know, yeah, yeah, but it yeah. was Christopher West, Jason Ever that really got me started. Yeah. Um, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So kind of like trace this narrative. So yeah. So through the college years. So talk to me a little bit about seminary. What, what drove you into seminary? What was your experience like? And, and why did you not continue? In many ways, right? The majority of it or what I would say on the surface is like, I really love the church. I love ministry in the church. I have such a zest for life and a sense of adventure. And so I joined the Francis, they're called Franciscans TOR. They're the ones that uh, a group of Franciscans that run Steubenville University um, and the Steubenville Youth Conferences. And when I was a youth minister in Dallas, I worked at a Catholic church run by those Franciscans. They've been around for about 150 years as a community in, in the United States. And because of that, you'll find the younger Franciscans in this community are very traditional, conservative, but also very, very charismatic. But a lot of the friars in this community that are in their maybe 40s, 50s, and 60s are more progressive because of their formation. So it was a rather diverse group um, other than the, the ways that it's been split chronologically in terms of like ages generationally. So when I went into this religious community, I mostly clung to the younger guys who had a certain view of the human person, sexuality, ecclesiology, sacramental life, and charismaticness. But there were plenty of people in that community that were more progressive. And so when I came into this religious community, I was pretty open about my sexuality being gay. Mm -hmm. And the formators being baby boomers, <laughs> they were formed into a different time. They were on the progressive side, like we're pretty okay with that. So in my story, you'll hear this like constant theme where there were influencers in my life who were more middle of the road to progressive on this issue yeah. who weren't trying to change my sexuality, but I had been so groomed by certain theologies, by certain important people in sort of Catholic pop culture that yeah. I wasn't willing to let go of my narratives. Even, yeah. even if the spiritual director that I had, I remember distinctly in seminary, I had this very well-respected spiritual director who was a Benedictine who said to me, are you sure you shouldn't come out? Like, you know, I can't, he would say, I can't say this from the pulpit, um, but I think the best thing for you might be to be with a man. So, so many people that so many Catholics would deem as Orthodox priests, uh, spiritual directors, very wise spiritual directors quietly would nudge me towards coming out as gay and, and yeah. seeking partnership. They could never say it from the pulpit yeah. because they would, you know, tarnish their reputation and cause, you know, schism and, and parish parishioners like, you know, revolting and bishops slapping them on the wrist and all these things. But I just wasn't willing to buy that. And I was not open to that. I was committed to being the true Orthodox Catholic all through all those influencers that I had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an experience that I've had as well. Kind of just, you know, these priests or kind of Catholics and influence in the church where kind of publicly they have this persona, but then privately they'd say things to you that a lot of people would find scandalous. You know, I mean, what do you make of that? Uh, most of them are gay. <laughs> To be really, okay, really, sure, really sure. frank, you guys listening here, like, as I, as I look back now that I've come out, like a lot of these men could have very well been living great celibate lives and dedicated, but as someone who might be gay and who's integrated that, um, sees that in someone else, you know, not always. Right. I mean, I, I know that's kind of, I just <laughs> shot right to it. Um, but I just find a ridiculous amount of priest and religious, even if they are living celibately have have an experience of being gay you know and so uh, they have a certain understanding and nuance and sort of uh, compassion for me in that way you know and they've probably seen it with so many other married men and priests throughout time that have 
lived a life that's like duplicitous and traumatic. Like I was living for a long time where they're not able to live their vows to their wife or they're not able to live their vows to the church, you know, and they're just very disintegrated. Yeah. 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 And and one of the things as, as a point of clarification, so you mentioned earlier that, you know, you in Simon seminary, like you were basically gay. Was that, was that how you would describe yourself with that word or would you have described yourself in, in a different way or using? Different yeah. Language? And this whole time, all this time I caused, I would consider myself same sex, same sex attracted ever since I picked up the term at age 18, all the way until 28. Right. And, and the whole bit is, you know, you're not, you can't say you're gay because, you know, gay people in the LGBT political movement, take their identity and being gay above their identity in Christ. And so yeah. you can't call yourself gay because that's not your identity in Christ. You're, you're a person with same-sex attraction, which is funny that that is like sort of viewed as the Orthodox Catholic word when it was invented by Protestants, like 20 years before that or 30 years before that. And Catholics sort of adopted that word. And now they're slowly walking away from it. Now they're saying things like, what's well, not same-sex attraction, it's same-sex desires. And now they could say the LGBT experience, you know, it's yeah. funny yeah. that after a while Catholics, conservative Catholics soften to words and ideas that were sort of pursued or brought forth by liberals and pioneered by, you know, the liberal anti-church movement. And then they slowly like walk, walk into those things and then adopt them as well um, without sort of admitting, you know, now they're now, now you could be an Orthodox Catholic and be gay and be an LGBT person, you know, um, because our generation of millennials has made it okay. Yeah. I guess, you know. Yeah. I mean, I definitely remember that time period where there was all these public debates where, you know, you definitely could not be gay and being gay meant that you did not believe the church's teachings and, you know, just using using that language basically meant that you were just on your way to heresy. That's I I definitely recall that time in the church and that yeah. time does seem to be for the most part gone, although I mean it certainly lingers in a lot of circles. And Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So seminary. So, so tell me a little bit more about kind of, you know, your general experience of seminary and then why, what you did after, why you left. Yeah, it was only in for nine months. And when I, when you're with a religious community, it's, it is kind of seminary, but really you're living in the religious life. And I was in a year called postulancy and it's a nine month discernment before you become a novice. And then you're in novitiate and that's more intense. If you're in a religious community, that's often when you change your name when you get a religious habit, when you renounce your possessions and like, you know, economically like come into this community. I didn't make it to that stage because I was only in that first year. And it was honestly the hardest year of my life. It was exhausting. And I think in retrospect, it's because I wasn't called to that way of life. And at the time I would have said it was for all these other reasons, other than being gay and being repressed. You know, I would have said it was uh, because I'm too independent and because I don't know, just different things in my life, but really that entire year was like hallmarked by me digging really deep in spiritual direction and therapy with again, retrospect to probably gay affirming therapist and spiritual director about all of my sexual trauma that I had had my entire life. And so that's one element of it is me sort of confessing in spiritual direction and therapy, all of this stuff that I'd experienced in my life, these hookup encounters and abuse when I was a kid and truth be told, like I was terrified of, being a part of the priest abuse crisis. Like I was terrified that I would be, you know, what I would say now in 2021 is like the next McCarrick at the time, like McCarrick was not busted yet. This was in like 2014. And I just, I was terrified. I was like, I have got to figure this out before I do something really stupid as a priest and destroy my entire community. You know, even if it was hooking up with somebody my age or hooking up with somebody five years younger, you know, if I'm 24 and they're 19, 
So that's one part of it. The other part of it is the entire time I was in seminary, I was romantically, emotionally, intimately involved with my best friend from college. Mm. At the time, like I was able to say, oh, this is just a brother in Christ. I have same sex attraction. And this is just an erotic desire that I have as a sex addict to act out with him. But we're we're really just brothers in Christ. Mm -hmm. So the entire time I was in seminary, we were able to keep up this facade that I was putting on that he's just a buddy of mine. He's just my best friend. And we would like Skype and talk on the phone once or twice a week. If I were straight and I were talking to my ex-girlfriend while I was in seminary, my four manner at seminarian brothers would be like, dude, like that's your, stop talking to your ex-girlfriend. Like, can you not live celibacy? But in, in the, in the church that I was living in, like the church experience was like, oh, well, you're not really gay. Gay desires aren't really a thing. And it was just like nothing to see here. It was just total denial. And so that's also something I was open with my spiritual director and therapist about. And so once I, I dropped out of seminary at age 24, it still took me four more years after that. So like seminary, it wasn't like I dropped out and was like, oh man, I can't be celibate. Yeah. It was like, I can't go to seminary yet. I need to go get more healing. Yeah. This guy that I was involved with, that was my best friend at the time. We eventually broke it off. We realized I had enough of, you know, people in my formation team call me out on it, mm-hmm. that we had a heartbreaking sort of breakup. And um, he promptly came out after that. Mm-hmm. He moved to a city that was more affirming and probably came out and has been in partnership with somebody that he met for the last like probably seven or eight years. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's just a lot of pain because, you know, knowing, knowing the ways that I hurt him and the ways that I was carrying on while I was like living the so-called celibate life, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and thank goodness I lived in a world where I was able to drop out of seminary and eventually come out, you know, um, because if it were 30 or 40 years ago, like things would have looked very different. You know, I could have been a priest right now, just living a really, really rough existence, you know, putting the entire church at risk yeah. and myself at risk. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I suspect that that experience you had of having this like really close, what you characterize like a friendship or kind of like brotherhood, but it's really, there's something else going on, but you can't be open and honest about it. And you're kind of this like confusing thing to navigate. I suspect that's a much more common experience in the church than a lot of people would suspect. You know, I had a somewhat similar experience wow. when I was in college. So, you know, I, I, I think that probably a lot of it's bound up with just this inability to talk openly about a lot of this stuff. But I mean, I, su- I suspect it actually happened or, or maybe still happens all the time. Yeah, you got like, like, how can I talk about how fucking real this is without outing so many <laughs> priests and seminarians that I know? Yeah. You guys like I would live, I lived in a house of six guys um, they were all in this culture of priesthood, whether we were in seminary or not, I'm not going to get the details cause I don't want to out anybody, but out of six, three of us were gay. You know, I, I, even as a lay person. So fast forward to when I was, had dropped out of seminary, I was working in nonprofit and church work. I have a lot of priests that are friends, um, close friends of mine. And I think a lot of it was like, because I was gay and because they're gay, like we just developed like a sort of a nurturing friendship. Um, not one why I felt like I was being groomed or taking advantage of, but as I got to know these priests well enough, I was a very open person. And I think that they probably had affection towards me. And I I think that, you know, um, even though nothing romantic or sexual ever happened, we got to know each other, each other well enough that like the boundaries came down and I was like, Oh yeah, either they would explicitly tell me they were gay or they would walk around the issue enough in conversations and happy hours and hangouts and stuff that like most of the priests that I, you know, I'm, I'm close with. And again, that's not to out anybody. That's not to raise, you know, I, I don't know. Like I even, as I talk about this, I shouldn't talk to, I get nervous about talking so openly about this, but to your point, like it's such a scandal and, and I'm not, 
trying to out these people as people that are not faithfully living out their vows of celibacy, you know, and, and they are devoted to the Lord. They are living celibate lives. Like they do love the church, like their call is authentic, you know, but for me, it, it would not have worked out. Yeah. I mean, as I kind of think about like the problems, you know, certainly, you know, there are a lot of like gay people, gay priests in the church who are, you know, like faithfully living out their vows, like having a very fruitful ministry, you know, that's really on one end of the spectrum, but then also kind of like the dark side of this kind of culture that's been created, these situations that people find themselves in, you know, there it's, it can be almost impossible to get out of, um, outside of something disastrous happening, or you go to seminary and you're in a situation where you have to tell your formator or your spiritual director, you know, I mean, I think, people can get in these type of relationships and they're just confusing and there's no help from anyone. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's incredible how easily we could sort of try to dissociate from like the reality that I experience is like, if I am a young man that is in love with the Lord that grew up in the South or is very Catholic and Orthodox, very, very conservative. And I love the Lord and I am totally gay. I do not feel called to marriage with a woman. I do not want to pursue that life. I definitely don't want to come out because I've been told that like there's this gay agenda that is anti-family and I'm going to get HIV and AIDS and the entire narrative that comes with that. I'm going to be unhappy. I'm not going to be able to find partnership. The statistics don't bear out that you can be in lifelong marriage commitment with a man, you know, all these things that I had been taught. Um, so I can't, I can't come out as gay. I'm not going to be with a woman. Oh, you're telling me there's this life that I could live that I could be dedicated to God all the time. And, oh, I could live with other men in community all the time. And we could live in the same house and pray together and hang out together. That sounds awesome. You know? And so when I dropped out of seminary, even before and after seminary, I always lived with other Catholic men in Catholic houses. Right. And I was, I felt like I was always the most zealous one to pray together and have fellowship. And one by one, I'd watch my straight friends go and date a girl and marry off and leave. And I get jealous and I would get upset. And I'm like, you're not getting, you're not committing to the lifestyle, you know, the lifestyle. Oh, um, you're not committing to the, the Catholic lifestyle that we, that we have here. And I would just find myself constantly unfulfilled. And so anyways, so sorry. So like the, 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 you know, sometimes I wonder if, if cel- the call of celibacy and priesthood and religious life for men and women in the church for 2000 years is honestly like the solution that we had for queer people for 2000 years, you know, or whenever celibacy came up in the 1100s or whatever, you know? Um, and so, yeah, like not to damn or condemn anybody, but just to say like how many queer people for the last 1500 years of Catholic church's history have found themselves in a life of celibacy in religious community because they didn't feel called to marriage, you know, and they didn't want to force it, you know? In the next episode, we'll pick up where we left off exploring Christopher's introduction to conversion therapy how he got out of it, and where he is now. You can get that episode delivered directly to your inbox by subscribing at chrisdamian.substack.com. Thanks for listening.